Support for this podcast and the following message come from Allianz Travel Insurance. You've got big plans ahead. Protect your adventures for the next 365 days with an all-trips annual travel insurance plan. Learn more and get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Welcome to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. What's going on? Let me paint a picture for you. I'm in a beautiful atelier in Harlem, surrounded by red velvet couches, gleaming wooden floors, and very high-end clothes. <laughs> nah, no, <good. laughs> Get that Come strong side. I'm this cool. Way. I'm cool. Remember I told you this way. Always get these people. This is none other than Harlem native and fashion icon Dapper Dan, or Dap as I call him. He and I are about to sit down for a video interview, and he can't help but direct the shot himself. And she's the director? Huh? Yes. The NPR crew is trying to get pictures of Dap and me, but Dap wants to make sure we get pictures of everybody, including the crew themselves. Make sure you get her, man, so people, young, young girls in Harlem will know the positions we hold behind the camera. You understand? Mm-hmm. I always tell them. If you don't already know who Dapper Dan is, you maybe just got a slice of several things that make this man tick. He's a visionary and a scholar. He's a designer who's been in the game for over five decades, and he cares as much about today's aesthetics as he does about the history behind them. He understands deeply the importance of representation across generations and industries. That's why he needs you to know that black and brown people were making things happen behind the scenes on the set today. And Dap, he always makes sure that things go down right here in Harlem. Here are some of the milestones in this 77-year-old legend's life. He was a gambling prodigy, earning thousands of dollars as a kid in the 1950s. He got involved with drugs as a teenager and briefly went to prison and came out with a newfound respect for black culture and sensibilities. He poured the sights and sounds of Harlem Corners into his clothing and opened his namesake store in 1982. You see, he saw the potential of logomania early on and repurposed luxury brands like Louis Vuitton and Gucci with his own vision. He started out dressing gangsters and hustlers and then went on to dress hip-hop greats like Eric B., Rakim, LL Cool J, and salt and Pepper. And when the FBI shut his store down in the 90s, he disappeared from the public eye for some time. But a few years ago, Dap got a shot at a Gucci partnership and one of life's greatest ironies. We'll get into that and more. With Dap, though, it's always a deep dive into history. From life in Harlem after the Great Migration to how rock and roll and jazz informed contemporary hip-hop culture. Quoting Malcolm X, Dap says, if you want to understand the flower, you got to study the seed. Also, today's a big day at The Limits. We're putting full-on video episodes on NPR's YouTube channel to go along with the pod moving forward. And trust me, you don't want to miss out on seeing Dap's atelier and designs. So let's get to it. Here's my conversation with the legend, the great Dapper Dan. Before I came here, I had to read an excerpt from the Emancipation Proclamation okay. for our morning edition, right? And since we're coming off Juneteenth, one of the things I found very interesting to hear your perspective on, your father was born 35 years after the Emancipation Proclamation yes. was signed, right? Yes. <laughs> How have you seen where we are now compared? I mean, that was such a short time ago. How do you envision that process since we've been there? Because it's very close. Yes. What I realized after studying my father and coming out, like um, walking away from the corners and going back to school at the age of 23, uh, 
I was fortunate enough to come into contact because I was writing for a radical student newspaper called 40 Acres in the Mule in 1968. And at that time, we had black scholars constantly coming in and out you know, to the, to the news uh, editorial board to talk to us. And one of the most impressive ones that uh, I spoke to was Dr. Henry Clark. And Dr. Henry Clark says to me that, uh, said to all of us, when the student asked him, he said, well, if we're the original people on the planet, why are we going through today what we're going through, you know? And Dr. Henry Clark's answer was, that's because of a transgression that we made against ourselves before Europeans came into our life. So that changed the whole perspective on how I saw the world. After that, that was 1968, I had an option to either accept an internship leading to a scholarship to go to Columbia University or do a seven-nation tour in Africa. So because of what uh, Dr. Henry Clark said, I had to find out exactly what he meant because he didn't elaborate. So I chose to go to Africa on a living, no hotels, on a living, living with families and everything. When I came back from Africa, one of the interesting things when over there, I asked the African, I said, um, do you think every day about the fact that you're black? And he said, I never think about that. Hmm. He said, I never think about that. And I, and I like, went to bed that night thinking, Wow, we think about that every day, consciously or subconsciously. Yes. Every single day. We walk down the subway, we encounter somebody. If, if we, uh, and Dap always reminded of it, too. We're always reminded of it. And then when I start reflecting on my father, I said, wow. Um, when my father came up during the Great Migration at 12 years old, I never heard him complain. Hmm. You know, all hmm. he did was what he needed to do. And I said, oh, that's what it is. I'm not going to be complaining. I'm going to do what I have to do to make my way through the system. First off, to understand how to navigate the system, you have to understand the system, right? Mm -hmm. That's first and foremost. Yes. But as you were being raised during that time, and let's go back before you even went to Africa, before you were able to discover what Henry Clark was talking about. Your first awareness around civil rights and activism, like what were your first experiences with that? Did that set you on that journey towards discovery? No one set me on this journey. I read Malcolm, and Malcolm said, if you want to understand the flower, study the seed. And so everything I wanted to know about life, about business, about anything, I would always go back and see where it came from. That's why I went to Africa in 1968. Let's talk about Harlem for a second. We're here now, we're at your spot, incredible boutique downstairs. Provide some descriptive color for me about how Harlem was during your time being raised here. Harlem was amazing. If you look at Harlem now, uh, the uh, ethnic breakdown that you see in Harlem now is the exact same ethnic breakdown that I saw, but just a little more uh, white people. But the differences, the economical differences, the social status is different. Um, growing up in Harlem when I was born, we had poor Irish, poor Jews, poor Greeks, poor Italians, we were all here together. So that was a Harlem, in fact, that was a community that will never be seen in the world again. Hmm. And that's the Harlem that I grew up with. You know, it wasn't a race thing, it was an economic thing, of, yeah. It was economical yes. thing, so we were smashed together. It was a, a gumbo here in Harlem, you know? So that's what it was like, and we learned from each other, you know? And um, I slowly saw, um, growing up in the 50s in the elementary school, and then by the time I got to high school, um, they had all managed to get the Italians, the Greeks, 
you know, and all of them made it out. You know, they made it into the melting pot. So Harlem changed. But the biggest thing that changed Harlem was not so much the middle class that the whites leaving, it was the middle class blacks leaving. Because when I, in the 50s, right, you had redlining, mm -hmm. right, and segregation. So the middle class blacks was forced to be here with the rest of us, you know. But when, uh, when redlining, when banks started allowing blacks to move into the other, other suburban community and whites was more open to that, you know what I mean, there was uh, like um, all the middle class blacks left. Like you hear stories about Sugar Hill. Sugar Hill had the sugar on it. Those were sh sugar sweet black middle class people living on Sugar Hill. Man. Miles Davis, people Yeah, like and that, when right? we yeah. went to church, we went to church with middle class blacks and stuff. And then they all left. They left and then, then we no longer saw stars. We no longer saw those images. And, and then coupled with that, the drug epidemic hit in the 60s. And that destabilized us. That was the final nail in the coffin to take uh, Harlem downhill. So the educational component in the 50s, since the middle class was, everybody was grouped together, I mean, that's, how, that's the trickle down of how everybody was raised and, and rose together as a collective one. But you remove that middle class, yes. and it's about survival. That's right. Exactly. And it's about the absence of images. Yeah. And interaction. You know, Dap, I'm so, <laughs> I'm 40 years old. I grew up, my dad worked at American Express. First black executive I ever saw was a guy named Ken Chenault. Mm -hmm. ran American Express. I often think about how fortunate I was to have a dad that I saw him achieve that, that it let me know at a very young age, well, I can do anything. Um, and I think about my child who's four, growing up having a black president. It's just part of the fabric, the DNA. Since I found out we were going to be doing this interview, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how do you create a vision when there's not a vision for you to actually see? Like, you have to imagine it. You have to dream it. My father only went to the third grade. And when he came up here, he left at 12 years old. Never saw his family again. He came from uh, Emporia, Virginia, a little town, tiny town, 6,000. I studied it. 6,000, uh, population 6,000 when he left Emporia, Virginia. And he came up here. And in studying him and what he went through and never went back, and had to teach himself how to read so that he can pass the civil service exam to get a job uh, working for the uh, housing authority. I said, oh, there it is. So I put all these elements together, you know. But the overall thing, the biggest lesson I learned from looking at those people who made it, the difference between those who made it and my father is that I learned from my father how to fail and succeed. And that's something I didn't learn from successful people because when I looked at successful people, you know, they know how to do good, but they don't know how to do bad. Or you just don't have access to all the bad because you see the good. Yeah, yeah. but I'm saying in, in, in the event that you mm. go down, I've seen what it looks like now, you know. Even now, uh, the, the choices that I made, I say, this system can't break me because, you know, what they consider doing bad is normal for me. You know, they can't threaten me with not having anything because I grew up not having anything. You know what I'm saying? So I know it's a lot of people get broke doing that. Damn, that's, that's so, so it's because it feels like there's so many opportunities for people these days, but there's not that kind of mentality that my back is against the wall. I have no other choice but to make it. But the beautiful opportunity is that you do have opportunities, right? So how do you, 
How do you see, and I don't mean to jump ahead, but I am curious where you see the rest of the world as it relates to that same drive, that ambition. Because I feel it from the moment you walked in this room. I want to pinpoint where we are and how we're moving forward, but there's a direction, there's, a, there's yes. an ambition there. And thank you for answering that, because it's vision. You have to see it, and that's what I tell them all the time. Everywhere we go, I tell them, take pictures of the people behind the scene, because young black and brown people in Harlem, they don't get to see uh, productive people except for the ones who are being interviewed. You follow me? So I'd like them to take pictures of everybody, everywhere, in all our positions, wherever we go, so that they can see that. So I knew that I grew up in Harlem. I saw the stars, I saw the educators, I saw all that. But when they vanished, there was no images for them to see. So I know how important images to see. The public school that I went to, uh, Langston Hughes lived right across the street. Hmm. You know, And I'm <laughs> reading poems by Langston Hughes. Uh, who was the first borough president? Hewlin Jack, the first black borough president, came to our school and speak. You know what I mean? Um, 131st Street um, was where um, James Baldwin lived. You know, I saw all these things. These young people today don't see that. So I want these visions. I want them to be able to see these things. I want to be able to talk about these things. That's why I never left Harlem. No matter what, I'm not leaving Harlem because I know how important it is for them to see me. Young kids saw me on the train the other day. They said, but damn, damn, I never thought I'd see you on the train. I said, son, I'm on the train so that I can see you. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I know what it is to see somebody who can transition from where they are. Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, Malcolm X, Damn, I told you, this man has our history coursing through his veins. After the break, we hear how getting locked up unlocked his plans for the future. This is The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging, These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Dapper Dan has his pulse on the past, present, and future. He always seems to know how to transform what's going on into what's going to be happening next. That's as true with culture at large as it is in his own life. And when he spent a stint in prison for selling drugs as a teenager, that was listening and preparing for his next moves. You got to look at the time it was. It was, it was during the 60s. 
you know, and um, it, it was June 19th, I forget, like yesterday, June 19th, uh, 1967, I got it out, September 27, 1967, and I went right back to school. But now the penitentiaries, they make it impossible for you to get um, drugs while you're in there, and gangs, they're letting the gangs proliferate. So it's a lot of issues now that wasn't there, you know. You know, during the 60s, there was a lot of revolution, you know. It was a change in the music. You had um, you know, the sound of Philadelphia and all. And it, Barry Gordy allowed the musicians to change the platform when he had Marlon Gaye saying, what's going on? You know what I mean? That shift, that um, philosophical shift for people of color made a big difference for us young guys, you know? Mm-hmm. Wake up everybody. You know more? No <laughs> more sleeping in bed. You know? Yeah. All yeah. that. What's going on? Uh, and that's, and that, all of that, that whole thing, James Brown saying, Saying this, you know, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. We don't have that today. You know, we don't have a strong enough voice for that today. A lot of people complain today about drill music, you know, and um, they have no uh, counter-offense for that. You know, but we had a counter-offense for that. We had people singing about, we had a powerful voice, like, moving on up, you know? Mm. So that's what made the difference, you know. Take me back to 1982 when you opened this boutique, man. Yeah. Describe to me what it was like in this community, how you were like in that the high-end boutique fashion industry when you opened up here. I was living in a closed, locked social status. When you study my story, you see, I catered only to gangsters and hustlers. The reason being is I wasn't accepted by middle-class blacks. They, couldn't, they didn't understand uh, what I was doing. You know, they didn't understand it. Um, Why do you think that was? Because they, they um, I think they were fixated on vertical mobility that they didn't look around and see what was going on. You know what I mean? When you go back into the 80s when I was doing all this in 1987, there was only one, the European publication was the first ones that recognized me. And then from there, all these other people started recognizing me. All these European magazines and fashion magazines. Middle class blacks didn't see me. I got honored by Ebony two years ago for the first time after 30 mm-hmm. something years. You know what I'm saying? So now I give speaking engagements at FIT, at Parsons, at the Museum of Modern Art, at the Schomburg. I give museum in, in Africa, in Europe. You know, but I was never recognized, and I don't fault them for it, but we just have to open up our eyes, you know. They saw what I was doing as like, oh, oh he's just using them, their images. And they, they have no clue to, this is what history does. We take whatever we're given and we make something out of it. Who came here speaking English? Look at the music. Our music, we export more culture than any other group in the world, African Americans do. People of color... In North America and South America, export more culture in terms of music and other aspects of culture than any other group. The whole world is, is watching us. Take me through Logomania and how you yes. started that. All the symbols in, about America is founded on symbolism, the flag. You know, everything you see... Uh, the pyramid on the dollar bill, you know what I'm saying? The eagle with the 13 arrows and the 13 feathers, you know, and the 13 steps in the, in the eye. So I got into symbols early on. And so when I opened up the store, symbolism was already a big part of my life. 
And a guy came in the store and he had a Louis Vuitton pouch. And it was like, five, you know, Louis Vuitton pouches, five dollars worth of vinyl. Everybody got super excited about that pouch, you know? It was Jack, a big time hustler. And he had hundred dollar bills, and they was fascinated. And I looked at that and I say, they are fascinated, but it's the symbols. It's the symbols. So I thought to myself, damn, if I could have them walking around looking like that pouch, imagine what I could do. You know? Hmm. So I went to work, um, going back to what Malcolm says, study if you want to understand the flower, study the seed. So I taught myself everything about um, textile printing and began to print them symbols and use them in a way that they've never been used before. How so? So, Rufflemen give you one horse. Dapper Dan gave you a whole herd, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know, There's a slight twist on it, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, more is always, you know, if, if one is okay, more is always better. Mm -hmm. So I started using, and if you want blues and blacks and grays, which is the European way of, you know, portraying culture, I say, I'm going to give you yellows, peoples, and perk, you know, and pinks, and every color in the rainbow. So that's why you hear me say, uh, so I took symbols and, and Africanized them or blackenized them. And so that's how this whole thing with uh, Logomania uh, caught on. Now, tell me about your first collaboration that really launched you into the next echelon of your success. I mean, some of the hip hop names of artists that you've been able to collaborate with from the Eric B to the Rakims to the LL Cool J's. I mean, <laughs> the, the it type of people. Tell me how all that came together. Fortunate for me, I had three older brothers who, and so that enabled me to uh, witness music in three different levels, you know? So my brothers grew up with jazz, and my mother grew up with the blues. I grew up with rock and roll. But I noticed how all these different levels had um, a different costume, what I call a costume, you know? And the artists would dress different for each musical equation, you know? So I said, oh, and I began to notice. And now my brother and them was fixated on um, jazz, and their influence was the, the Rat Pack, Sammy Davis mm -hmm. Jr., you know, um, uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, you know, that whole crew, and, and they had their old style. So music, I, I noticed early on that music, the other side of the, the coin of music is fashion. Then I saw Miles Davis, you know, when he started playing new jazz, and then he went to a concert and saw uh, punk rock, acid rock, and he was fascinated. He said, man, look at all these people out here. So as he shift from new jazz to acid rock, so did his wardrobe shift. When the rap artists started coming to the store, I was always, you know, always had knowledge of how this evolves, right? So when they come, I ask them, well, how you want to look? How you want to feel? So they say, I want to look like the hustlers. So I took them to a new level of that. You know, here's the biggest transformation. The hustlers in the 50s going into the 60s, they wanted diamonds, furs, alligators, crocodiles, all of a sudden. And those are the things I focused on. But when I found out that the symbols could even supersede my ability to make money even more than those things, I said, I needed to develop this. You know, and they needed a new identity. Hip hop needed its own identity to show that they was big. So a guy would come, he could only afford a sweatsuit. Hmm. You know, like Jam Master J and Eric B and Rakim, they could afford the whole suit. I took European symbols and blackenized them, you know, and fashioned them in a way. People say, why did you do that? I say, Picasso 
did the same thing when he went to Africa. And from that there, we, we, hmm. we got all these different art forms. That's it. it has always happened, you know? Same thing with Elvis. You hear Elvis yeah, all the time. it's a right? forever thing. We see things, and then we adapt them to the way ours, the way we want, the, as a reflection of our culture and who we are. So that's all I did. The same way we talk. You know, in the same way we talk, what we do with language, how we do with song, how we do with everything, is just, you know, reflecting ourselves, reflecting ourselves. So when I opened up my store, I was fully conscious of that. I've, you know, when all the rappers got coming in, and to this day, even right now, I'm doing something from LL Cool J. So you have all these celebrities rocking logo mania, representing the brand moving forward. I want to bring you to a day because, you know, when you have logos from Fendi, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, you went through a moment with Fendi, reading your store. The one with Fendi? Yeah. Uh, Fendi was an interesting story. Because, yeah, take um, me through that. The lawyer representing Fendi, who was serving me the cease and desist orders, the cease and desist orders means they come, they shut you down, they take anything that you have. Um, with their logo on it, and any equipment that you use to make that. That gives them the power to do that, right? And one of the lawyers who uh, was representing that, the key lawyer who was representing that, was, uh, she's a justice of the Supreme Court now, Sotomayor. When she came in and she raided the store, right? <laughs> it, was, it was a strange day, because when she came in, she said, my, she said, wow, look at this. And but she commenced the raiding and taking everything. So that was the major raid. I didn't fight that vigorously. Had I fought that vigorously, history would have been changed because um, I didn't know at the time because I wasn't privy to the law concerning trademark. And so they end up uh, litigating against me and they took everything. Had I known, all I needed to do was go downstairs in, in, in City Hall and examine the records, all I had to do is commit. I would, you know, commit to, okay, I made a mistake, I'm sorry, and I could have paid a $5,000 fine. As opposed to that, I lost a quarter of a million dollars. Wow, you lost a quarter of a million dollars. That's right. I had a 2,000 square foot building on, no, 2,000 square foot factory on 120th Street, and I had a three-story building on 125th Street. And this was loaded with machines. I had, I had 23, I had 23 Africans sewing, 12 in the daytime, and 11 at night for 365 days a year for nine years straight. So that there's, did you ever think about like while you were putting things in motion and creating this unique product that am I doing something wrong here or you just, it was you're so locked into the process that you didn't spend time thinking about that? <laughs> I was, you know, <clears throat> I think crime might've been the first thing I learned. Um, you know, crime, the type of crime, that, that, to us, that wasn't even crime. You're you taking, you taking something that's not tangible. Huh. You know, crime to us was you're taking something tangible. Taking somebody's life. You, yeah, yeah, you're yeah, doing something. Yeah. goods or something like that. So I never, thought of, I never thought of it that way. Huh. How'd you stay afloat during those rough times, man? I think about my father and what he went through. There's nothing I went through that was greater than the challenge of the first migration, the great, the first great migration came to the South. I saw some, you know, I, I saw some horrible living conditions. I was born in the worst neighborhood in Harlem, you know, East Harlem, flat houses. You might look under my sink and yell at your neighbor, you know, rats, roaches, everything. 
Dapper Dan was knocked down when he was raided by the authorities, sure, and he was losing money hand over fist, but he remembered who he was and where he came from. The reinvention of Dapper Dan. That's next on The Limits. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com NPR and use code NPR. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Sometimes vultures, you know, you see a vulture coming... And the carcass is not dead, so they can't eat. Dapper Dan did more than survive. He thrived. And by the time 2017 rolled around, he was faced with an interesting situation. Gucci had, to put it generously, borrowed Dap's designs. Many on the internet said they should boycott the brand. But he turned cancel culture into one of the biggest opportunities in his life, taking his career to the next level and moving things forward for all black creatives. So take me through this moment in 2017 with Gucci. Oh, amazing. Take, yeah, take me through, like, and it, sometimes I get frustrated at, at the internet that, right? Because I, I think sometimes it, a lot of the negative things trend instead of seeing the incredible things or the opportunities that come along with it. But there was this inflection point that happened for you with Gucci in 2017. Take me through that process. Everything that I did in fashion prior to 2017, I never thought I would get credit for. I saw Tom Ford, I saw all of them appropriate the designs and stuff on them. And I had no clue to until Alexander Michelle stood in here right by that table back there and said to me, he said, I don't know why everybody's upset with me get paying homage to you. He said, all the major houses have Dapper Dan looks on their mood board. Hmm. You know, and that was like a Wow, that was like a hell of a moment for me. And then, how uh, did you even respond to that? First off, huh? it had to be a level of appreciation where you're hearing that. But you're, uh, I mean, was there anger? Was there appreciation? What was the feeling? Well, you, a lot of people say that because your generation is the generation of expectation. My generation is the generation of like it may not happen because they blocking us. That's the difference, you know. Y'all can expect it to happen because y'all seen things happen. My generation, we didn't see nothing happen. Not coming from my level, you know? So your generation is a generation of expectation. You don't seen everybody do everything. 
You don't saw a president and all of that. You saw, I ain't see that. Me and my friends grew up, every woman on TV was a maid. Every man was a butler. Bill Cosby was the first one to come on TV that had a role where he was anything other than a butler that we saw. Hmm. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, all my creative things, I didn't think I was going to get credit for it. What changed my life was social media. Social media came along and people could, people could associate what they were seeing with what they heard about or what they saw in Harlem. <laughs> and that's what made the difference, you know? And so um, when social media went into an uproar over uh, what Gucci did, I said, oh, wow, I got a voice. I never had a voice before. People are going to know where it really came from. So that was like, a, man, that was like, that was a great moment for me just to see that. But uh, I never expected what happened, what Gucci did would happen, though, even in spite of that. But um, when Gucci decided to say, well, it's only right that we give him his credit, you know? And was strategic as well. But uh, Marco Bazzari, I think, in, in his brilliance, he fully embraced what it was. You know, this came from Dapper Dan, so let's give him a partnership, you know? And I doubted that. You know, my son said, yeah, man, Gucci is serious. I said, man, yeah, they've been raiding me for 20 years. What do you mean they're serious? I've read about that. You told them, oh, if they're really serious, tell them to come down here and yeah, talk. Yeah, tell them yeah. to come to Harlem. And they came. I said, I tell them, I have to, to continue to be able to do what I've always done. And they made that possible. So I said, wow, this is that moment. This is that time, you know? Dad, just tell me the feeling really quickly when Gucci walked into your place. I have it on film. And they walked together with us from my brownstone to the Apollo Theater. How profound is that, man? <sighs> Letting everybody in Harlem see him? What kind of, that, you imagine that statement? It's a massive statement. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was, that was like, I say, this is serious here, you know? Let me tell you, you think that was powerful. If you look at when I got the Joffrey Beam Award, mm -hmm. and I, there's a, on the Gucci, you can go on the Gucci website, I think myself, I think Tom Ford and Alexander Michelle will stand together. And Alexander Michelle, the caption on the Gucci website is, now the world knows the secret of my garden. Hmm. You know how powerful that is? That's not on Dapper Dan's IG. That's on Gucci IG. Now the world knows the secret of my garden when he's presenting me. When you see black-owned brands, right, I uh, talk about FUBU, cross colors, things of that sort. Uh, how do you view sustainability of black-owned luxury brands in this world? The sustainability of it? Like, where are the challenges that come along with it? That Here's the key. Had they studied the key to what I did, those brands would still be alive today, you know? Um, or if they study what brands do today, they would still be here. Um, I think Cross Colors kind of caught on when they went, when they knew they were sinking and they went and got Carl Kanai, you know, to reinvigorate them. They kind of caught on, but it was too late. They created uh, an identity that was only suitable for the the period, that certain period. You know, they dated themselves, mm -hmm. all right? What did I do to make me successful? 
I never allowed myself to get fixed in a certain identity. When every artist that came to me and all my clients came to me, I didn't create solely from myself. I asked them, I looked at their lyrics, I looked at their lifestyle and, what, and the message they wanted to bring. And I created from that. So I became every artist. And throughout time, I kept dealing with different artists and representing what they want to say, you know, and how they want to look. For instance, here's an example. Eric B. and Rakim. When you see the jackets that I did for them in the 80s, Rakim has on the back of his jacket the 5% symbol to represent that. So I knew that's who he was, so I, gave, I represented him that way, but with the same symbols. Eric B. is a swag man, so I represented him with the Gucci on the back with swag that way, right? Then you had Jungle Brothers came. They was, their rap was, and their look was about Afrocentrism. So I had them, I made them outfits in red, green, and black. Boogie Down Production come, and they into Jamaican rap, so I used all the Jamaican colors. So throughout my whole history of creating, I constantly adapted to the artists, you know? So what I like to tell young people is uh, Dapper Dan does not dictate fashion. He translate culture because all these cultural icons that come along, I give them the look that they that goes with what they want to do. Hmm. You know, and that's what they didn't do. They made everybody look the same, you know, straight across the board. Dab, I'm I'm so fascinated by this because you're still going. Obviously, another collaboration with Gap. You're, you're still doing a lot. But I am curious along your journey, who do you see as up and upcomers that maybe carry the same swag or vision that you have incorporated into the game? Um, the closest thing I can see to that is Kirby Jean Raymond. Yeah, because not only is he creating great fashion, but he's making uh, powerful social statements, you know? So uh, other than him, I, I, and, and he speaks truth to power, you know? Because he's in a position where he could be threatened. His career could be threatened, but he's speaking up, you know? One of the terms I hear people use all the time, and I see it trending on social media all the time, is like hashtag black excellence. Uh, through your upbringing and all your experiences, how does Dapper Dan define black excellence? Uh, I see it as people who commit themselves to something, a cause, or a profession, and through their ability, they take it to levels that it hasn't been taken before, or reach levels that others can't reach. That's what black excellence means to me. Well, there's no doubt, man, what you've been able to achieve and what you're still achieving and where you're going. That you are, uh, you're a visionary and you're part of that success story, man. I, I, this has been one of the most incredible learning experiences I've had in my life, just sitting here hearing the knowledge, the history of Harlem and how you've battled through. Like, you know, this whole show is based upon, it's called The Limits, right? Because I feel like we all have things that can inhibit how we move or how we decide to move, but there's a mentality that you have that is so unique. It's almost, it's a relentless spirit there. You almost feel like that in a way, like you were going to be successful regardless of whatever it was in your life, that you had that kind of passion, that kind of drive. Did you see, I don't know whether you saw the conversation I had on the Breakfast Club. 
With Charlemagne the God? Yes. Yeah. I heard it. Can you do me a quick favor and just recap it for us real quick so they can understand what it was? Well, I had to explain to, to young people why it's important to penetrate corporations as opposed to getting mad at what corporations do and walk away. That, you know, everybody in my generation and maybe two or three generations below me understand what that means because it's how we got where we got. Do you understand what I'm saying? One of the most critical things that happened in the last three or four years in fashion, as in well in other profession, is the way we formulate cancel culture. Cancel culture is very dangerous if it's not used right. So cancel culture said walk away from Gucci. Statistics show the, we, maybe 3% to 5% of um, African-American dollars go into these big brands. If we walk away from these brands, we have no leverage to infiltrate these brands. Mm -hmm. So cancer culture say walk away, you know? But history says get in. You follow what I'm saying? And I took a lot of slack for this, you know, and because I said we should be happy when brands make a mistake, because when they make a mistake, we can step to them and make sure they let us step up, not step off. We gain nothing, right? And so putting in place opportunities in various aspects for blacks to excel within the fashion industry, right? Not stepping away, stepping in. Stepping in, that's gonna elevate us. You know, when you look back on uh, all, every historian will tell you every time it's a war, black people move up because they need us to shoot guns, starting with the Civil War. The, the people who had the biggest impact on fashion during those crises and the crises that are yet to come are people who are not in part of the fray on an everyday basis. And that's a big problem. Outsiders who challenge the status quo. They should have yeah. known that. Look, Gucci came and got me. That was so significant as a result of like, you, you know, do the right thing. They came and got me, great. So what did that mean? Louis Vuitton had to go get Virgil, right? I ask these brands today and I ask people today, okay, you're gonna, you're gonna make a change. Make sure you come get the next Dapper Dan off the street corner, because that's where it came from. Make sure you come get the next Jay-Z because what would the culture be like if it, if it didn't start from the corners, if we don't go in the corners? Do you understand what I'm saying? That's the big part of what's happening. So wait, so that, let me, because I, I agree with you on this, right? It's not about just penetrating, it's about elevating once you are able to penetrate. How do you balance the delicacy of the vulnerability that some of these old guards, traditional brands still have? It, it's it's self-healing. Let me tell you what it does. It fixes itself. I'm uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable if I'm broke. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the Factual. bottom line. Yes. So that's why it fixes itself. You get the first people in, and then comp their competition has to respond to that because it's going to make a difference. So it's self-healing. So diversity and inclusion just spreading itself. Yes. You know what I'm saying? So in the moment of crisis, don't step away. Step in. That's step right. Step further in. Yeah. Yeah. Dab, I, I appreciate you for your knowledge. I appreciate you for your time. 
And thank you so much for no, today. Thank you. It was a game changer. I appreciate <laughs> you, brother. A big thanks to Dapper Dan's team for letting us do this interview, including a full video shoot at his atelier in Harlem. I got a big lesson in how to make sense of history and one's personal history to gain strength and understanding from it. On this week's episode of The Limits Plus, Dap talks about his childhood heroes and the wisdom he now shares with kids in Harlem. And as always, remember, stay positive and let's keep it moving. The Limits is produced by Devin Schwartz, Mano Sundaresen, and Lena Sunsgiri. Our intern is Daniel Soto. Video production by Kaz Fantone, Langston Sessoms, Christina Shaman, Iman Young, and Nick Michael. Our executive producers are Karen Kinney, Verilyn Williams, and Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming and audience development is Anya Grumman. Music by Ramteen Arab Louie. Special thanks to Christina Hardy, Rudy Correa, and Charlotte Rica. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.